welcome to the Lubber's Hole, your Patrick O'Brien podcast. You're with Ian. And with Mike. And we are still rereading our way through the Aubrey Matra novels, and in particular, rereading once again the very first novel in the series, Master and Commander. Mike, tell us how our rereading was going last week, and what are we going to be rereading this week? You betcha, Ian. Well, last week in Chapter 9, Stephen was concerned that Jack and Dylan might kill each other. Mm. Young Ellis, Molly Hart's protege, joined the Sophie as a guest on this current cruise. We saw him lost overboard, drowned, and then revived by Stephen. Jack evaded the French by launching a raft of lights behind them in the dark, you know, a decoy just like the movie. And Stephen learned that the Spanish are increasingly well informed about the Sophie and what she looks like and where she is. Finally, at the end of the chapter, Jack received quite a shock when he stopped by to surprise Molly Hart at Suladela. Now, this time in chapter 10, the tension between Jack and Dylan mounts. Jack's luck in prizes continues, but we start wondering, maybe perhaps he's too lucky? Well, Jack and Dylan face gunboats off Barcelona, as well as their internal and external nemeses before the chapter is over. And yeah, if any of you listeners out there are not familiar with the exploits of Thomas Cochran, well, by the end of this chapter... You're going to be. <laughs> Absolutely, Mike. Cochrantastic. That's what we're uh, that's how we're naming this chapter. We start as we have often started in the past with Stephen in reflective mode, Stephen journaling and reflecting to himself, and he's wrestling a bit with memory. He's sitting there writing in his journal and he recalls an account from Maimonides. We'll we'll come back to Maimonides in a second. Maimonides is an account of a lute player who completely forgets both his song and how to play it at a performance. And Stephen remembers returning from Spain back to Ireland as a boy with no ability to understand the Irish that the nurse of his youth had spoken to him. And he remembers all this because he's found he no longer knows what his two friends, Jack and Dylan, feel, intend, or even mean. He can no longer see into them. He's lost that quality of kind of insight and penetration to what's happening here. And he's really, really unhappy about this. Yep. Stephen knows that Jack himself was really badly disappointed in Sudadella. He had, had gone ashore for an assignation. And Dylan himself is also in a state of really great unhappiness. Neither one of them will talk about it with Stephen. And Mike, that's grim for Stephen because he's really valued the connection that he has with both of these men. And we've both learned a lot and they've all learned a lot from each other in some of the conversations they've had. Absolutely. He knows his own worry and ill humor gets in the way. But as the text says, I confess that as much as I love them, I could wish them both to the devil with their high flown, egocentrical points of honor and their purblind spurring one another onto remarkable exploits that may very well end in unnecessary death in their death which is their concern, but also in mine, to say nothing of the rest of the ship's company. A slaughtered crew, a sunken ship, and my collections destroyed, these do not weigh at all against their punctilios. uh, Punctilios meaning fine or petty points about correct behaviour. 
I'm like so many of Stephen's reflections, I really enjoy reading this. I really also enjoy the fact that O'Brien is kind of using Stephen to to raise a challenge here. He's saying all of this kind of spurring on death or glory stuff is is fine for the action hero of what you might call a middle brow, you know, military action adventure story. It's not enough, really, on mature reflection, to be the the single driving force for a sensible person in in a real world at least one not not one occupied by Stephen Matcher. Yeah. So good on Stephen. Good on Stephen for giving us the signal here that we're not going to be happy with just death or glory. We're after something deeper in these books. But meanwhile, Mike, that's all coming. Tell us about this guy, Maimonides. It's a, it's an easy name to jump over, and I know I have many times in the past. Help us dig in here. Yeah, you know, and and I almost skipped this one because Stephen, you know, gave us several examples of this forgetting behavior here. And I thought, well, we really don't need to worry about this loot player. But once again, this is O'Brien signaling us to say, I'm going to mention somebody, a real person in history to tell you something about this story, to tell you something about a character. And this one I th- I think he's, he's using to tell us about Stephen and to reference back to this situation. Mamonides is a highly esteemed Jewish philosopher. He lived uh, from 1138 to 1204. He was in Spain, wrote in Arabic then to Hebrew, and was one of the most prolific and influential Torah scholars of the Middle Ages. He was also a preeminent astronomer. Jack would love him. And he was the personal physician to the first sultan of Egypt and Syria. So physician, scientist, somebody who really believed in the power of reason and logic. He wrote, for example, The Guide for the Perplexed, which was his attempt to reconcile Aristotelianism and science with the teaching of the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. No mean feat there, but, you know, kind of trying to reconcile this scientific, almost like enlightenment view with this first five books of the Bible. And and his philosophical works had a really important influence on a lot of Catholic men of faith and philosophers. Uh, Albertus Magnus, Thomas Aquinas, Duns Scotus, And he, along with this idea about logic and the rational man, as well as the man of faith, he wrote a lot about moral character development. And he believed that, you know, and and I'm, I'm quoting now, each person has an innate disposition along an ethical and emotional spectrum, although one's disposition is often determined by factors outside of one's control, human beings have free will to choose to behave in ways that build character. And he, and he really advises people to take any character traits that are essentially antisocial and, for example, identify them and then make a conscious effort to behave in an opposite way. So, you know, an arrogant person would practice humility, if you will. And, you know, we can kind of hear this echoing, echoing, echoing throughout this book. And one of his beliefs was if, if your circumstances of your environment are such that it's impossible to behave ethically, then you should just move to a new location. Now, I will tell you for you real live Torah scholars, for you real live philosophers, a lot of that is Wikipedia sourcing. But uh, it's it, clearly this is a guy that O'Brien is flagging to us. We see so much of this in Stephen, yeah. and clearly it's caught up in this tension we have between our three characters that Stephen's just been writing so clearly about. Yeah. 
brilliant pickup. I'm, I'm going to dig some more into Maimonides. I think he sounds great. So Stephen's kind of reflection is at this very elevated level of really deep, wise, liberal philosophy, as you might say. And he's comparing that with the responses that he's getting right now from Jack Aubrey and James Dillon. He's not happy. He's upset by what he calls their, pause for a drum roll for the pronunciation, <laughs> floxynorsinihilipilification. I think I got that. I'll give myself seven out of 10 for that one. Floxynorsinihilipilification of all of his efforts, Stephen's efforts to help them. He's been bleeding them. He's been prescribing medication for them. He's been changing their diets. And none of it seems to be working out. And I think Maimonides would probably say, you know, this is innate character, not uh, <laughs> not physical indisposition. He's worried that maybe they've agreed to fight a duel next time they're ashore and that they don't want Stephen to know and therefore to try and stop it. He says that if these two worked the crew's daily jobs, scrubbing decks and cleaning heads and hoisting sails, and by implication didn't have you know time for their idle minds to to work away at this stuff. If these two worked the crew's daily jobs, they wouldn't have all these vaporings, as he calls them. He finds it immature. He says they're wandering about the face of the ocean in a quest of violence. And he goes even further. Remember, this is the person who's just a few chapters ago met and struck up a really profound friendship with Jack Aubrey. Some scales have fallen from his eyes here about Jack. Right. Even though he says Jack has an appreciation for complex, beautiful things like music, he is, in Stephen's words, more suited to be a pirate chief in the Caribbean a hundred years ago. And Dylan, he says, is in danger of becoming an enthusiast, a latter-day Loyola, if he is not knocked on the head first or run through the body. And Mike, that, that, that sounds like a, a, a real put-down from Stephen. We know that he doesn't like enthusiasm, if you read ahead to some of the books, you'll hear him discoursing on the enthusiasm and Rousseau and romanticism. But why does he not like Loyola? Tell, tell us about where that dislike comes from. Well, you know, it, it's interesting here, especially in the context of this quote. So Loyola, St. Ignatius of Loyola, was a soldier turned Spanish Catholic priest, kind of had this, you know, uh, as he was recovering from wounds. And his, I believe it was his sister that was giving him you know, instead of romantic, you know, it's sort of your death and glory books <laughs> and these yeah. romantic things, giving him, you know, kind of lives of the saints, tales of Jesus. He kind of has this transformation and he founds the Jesuit order. Now, you notice that Stephen had said there, you know, that Dylan may become an enthusiast if he's not knocked on the head first or run through the body. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, one of the Jesuits' motto uh, is the Latin for as if a dead body. And, and it's a way of saying kind of, you know, we empty ourselves of all of our ego and, and stress the Jesuits' absolute, you know, self-denial and obedience to the Pope. But in the context of this one, I think, you know, O'Brien, again, is calling us back to you know, this kind of hot-headed, enthusiastic pursuit. Uh, sometimes it gets you knocked over the head or run through the body. <laughs> He's scattering these references all over the paragraph for us to dig into. I really like this long word. When I first read it, I thought it was a joke. I thought it was one of Stephen Maturin's kind of invented compound ideas. But it's a real thing. So, Mike, each of these words, these floxy and the norsi and the nihil and so on, these are all individual words that have been collected together, right? Yeah, yeah. They were actually listed in this Eaton Grammar you know, as kind of a list of words that all mean the same thing. Kind of, we would have synonyms listed together. 
Yeah. But this this jokester, probably like our latter day Patrick O'Brien, decides, well, why don't I just run them all together in one word and add this fication at the end of it? <laughs> and then we'll, we'll have it mean one thing. And it and it just gets picked up and reused and reused after that. Yeah, yeah. Mostly by people talking about long words, right? Yeah. <laughs> Presumably beloved of crossword puzzlers. I, I think O'Brien to get it through his editor, yeah, and his proofreader and his compositor and for and it for to find its way onto the page here is uh, is quite the uh, quite the thing. That's right. <laughs> so Stephen is is particularly worried. You know, he says there's been this recent JAJD conversation, and this is the way he notes Jack Aubrey and James Dillon in his journal. And and it wasn't Dillon's comment a very profitable commercial venture, you know, kind of looking down his nose at Jack after Jack had guided the Soviet to intercept a rich Spanish merchantman. And O'Brien wrote, as if the Spanish captain had kept his hour to the minute. So, you know, it really looked like Jack knew exactly where this merchantman was going to be, you know, hour, day, minute. And and Dylan passed it off as as kind of this, you know, profitable commercial venture. But it was a conversation later that day when Stephen and Dylan were on the quarterdeck discussing, you know, essentially the social differences between the Spanish, the French, the English, the Irish about taking meals and, you know, what they do during meals. And the subject of dueling came up. And Dylan says, perhaps a little loudly, mm. before now, I have given Englishmen provocation that would necessarily have called for a meeting in Ireland with no result. We should call that remarkably timid, or is shy the word. And immediately after that, Jack pops open his cabin skylight, which opens right there onto the quarterdeck. We've heard time and time again how you can hear everything you know, from the quarterdeck inside to the cabin. And, you know, Stephen says that this ingenuous man shows a black and wicked face. So Jack has heard this and, you know, reacted pretty strongly to it. This is absolute trolling of Jack Aubrey by, by James Dillon. Right. Um, if, if, if Jack was a teenager, he would have put his head up out of the hatchway and said, your mama. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. Teenagers, the pair of them. Stephen really suspects that this was a deliberate provocation by Dylan. I don't think we're left with very much doubt. Right. Consistent with the behavior that we've seen from Dylan so far, and Stephen's worried that when Jack is fighting with his superiors, when, whenever he's irked by some slight of the service, or as Stephen says, at present lacerated by his mistress's infidelity, he flies to violence as a relief, to action. JD, says Stephen, urged on by entirely different furies, does the same. The difference is that whereas I believe J.A. merely longs for the shattering noise, immense activity of mind and body, and the all-embracing sense of the present moment, and Stephen's seen that up close with Jack in action already, I'm very much afraid that J.D. wants more. I mean, How much more foreboding could we ask for here, Mike? Yeah, really, really. Yeah, this isn't just about that smell of gunpowder <laughs> in the morning, right? Yeah. Next up, Jack calls Stephen on deck and they observe the coast of Barcelona from up in the rigging. By the way, it's a very, very nice and authentic and complete description of Barcelona as seen from the sea. Stephen points out key landmarks and he tells Jack what he knows of where the king's ships and gunboats lie. And then as they've been up in the top here, there's this really nice reminder of the difference between Stephen and Jack and James and the rest of the crew. Uh, Babington and the crew hoist Stephen back down, 
from the top back down onto deck in a cocoon that they'd used to get him up for no one on board had the least opinion of his abilities as a seaman. Now, stick a pin in that attribute for a little moment that we're going to get with some action with Stephen towards the end of the chapter here. Ah. Well, Stephen now safely back on deck actually goes below deck to pay his respects to Tom Simmons, a, a patient that he's lost to a coma. And, and Simmons is currently being sewn into his hammock, you know, as, as the burial process mm-hmm. went. And as he's talking with Simmons' messmates, he's incensed to learn that Tom was drinking a quart of neat rum a day, uh, you know, an amount that they said was, you know, it's kind of really easy for somebody who's a popular crew member to obtain. Stephen thinks that the quart that he was drinking was a mixture of water and rum. No, 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 that's the rum. And Stephen, you know, is aghast. And he says he's going to have the captain pour all the rum over the side. But alas, only... Old Tom Simmons is poured over the side after his burial service. And and perhaps we reflect this is the good thing, because as a crew told Stephen in that conversation, if the grog was ever too weak, we might soon have a bloody mutiny on our hands. Yeah. And this echoes a, a part of a couple of the conversations that the movie versions of Jack Aubrey and Stephen Maturin had as well. Now, Stephen's been summoned on deck to admire another deceptive ruse i mean we've mentioned thomas cochran many times this chapter is going to be cochran all the way through one of cochran's hallmarks is the disguising of his ships to make them look like something else the crew now shows Stephen that the sophie is disguised as a three-mastered snow with a new paint job the new mast is in fact not a mast it's what's called a horse it's a cable rigged tight to look like a trisail mast those who are not involved in painting and rigging or making shot perfectly round are working on weapons. They're sharpening cutlasses, pikes, boarding axes, marines' bayonets, midshipmen's dirks, and officers' swords. That's pretty much everything with an edge on the ship. And Stephen describes this as a quiet, brooding, perhaps prophetic atmosphere. So Stephen's still in this very foreboding mode here. He thinks about this as he falls asleep, and he wakens when he hears the master, Marshall, tell midshipman Ellis that Ellis cannot, in fact, disturb Dr. Maturin to ask what physic would answer for a slack-going horse. But and this is a typical apprentice prank to me, Mike, the uh, the equivalent of telling the apprentice to go ask the storeman for a can of tartan paint. They've sent Ellis to ask Maturin what physic would answer for a slack-going horse, presumably, Mike, inspired by all this mentioning of the, of the, of the new mass that is itself a horse. And as Marshall's deflecting this practical joke away from Stephen, Stephen reflects that the ship's atmosphere hasn't reached as far as the midshipmen, who are in their own little um, bubble of the happiness of youth, are, as he says, widely independent of circumstance. And that gets Stephen, in turn, remembering his own childhood, the intensity of the present, happiness not then a matter of retrospection nor of undue moment, And he's drawing a really powerful contrast here for us between the midshipmen and the rest of the crew, and even more so Jack and Dylan, who Jack and Dylan are completely caught up in the remembered hurts of the past, so much so that they harm the present and they miss the opportunity that the midshipmen are taking here for joy and peace and presence. (sighs) And a really, really beautiful reflection here, I think, and really intense foreshadowing of what's going to come. Calling to mind Ellis, calling to mind Dylan. Oh, yeah, Mike. Well, 
Stephen's now up. They're in the gun room. They're eating together. And Stephen notices how skilled the officers are in keeping the conversation flowing, you know, moving over any points of tension, you know, dealing with people who sometimes are very different and might have strong feelings about each other. And, and he kind of reflects that this outcome is, is no doubt the product of many years at sea and the tradition of generations of tight-packed mariners. So, you know, when you're in these conditions, you have to learn to live with each other. And God, don't we wish that it kind of went to the captain and the lieutenant as well here, that they would remember this here. And, and Marshall, you know, Stephen earlier, had we'd heard a little bit about this ship's transformation, but Marshall's telling Stephen now that when he gets back upstairs, he's now going to see this three-masted vessel in all its glory. And when they finish up, Dylan and Marshall take Stephen on deck to look. And Stephen looks around and he's, you know, he's looking for a literal mast and literal sails and everything. And he doesn't see it. And he really gets upset by this. He thinks that Marshall's been making fun of him. And he's in he's in a pretty sour mood anyways. And he speaks very, very harshly. I think, you know, he's so upset by his concerns about Dylan and Jack that, you know, he's kind of a very short fuse here. Marshall is really upset by the ferocity of Stephen's stare and his harsh words, and he appeals to Dylan. And, and I, I love it. Dylan sort of turns and says, "Joy, shipmate." <laughs> then, you know, then, then Dylan, you know, kind of walks him over to the rope and assures him that for any mariner out there, they're going to be fooled by this, especially when we go ahead and finish putting the sails on it and putting the crow jack up there. And then Stephen turns and apologizes to Marshall, who who very immediately and very graciously accepted, uh, because Marshall's fully aware of Stephen's liking for him, and he appreciates that. I, I sometimes get the feeling that I'm, I'm not sure how many friends Marshall has on the ship. He knows that Stephen is one of them, and you know, uh, Stephen said something like, "You know, I'm, I'm sorry for speaking so harshly," and Marshall had said something like, "You know, well, you'd have to be harsher by half to uh, upset me." So. Once again, this ability for congeniality between these mariners kind of shows through. Yeah. So I like the fact that O'Brien's just rescued Stephen a little bit from the really dark bits of introspection by having this little side conversation with Marshall here. And it helps us kind of feel in a slightly optimistic mood when we hear that uh, the lookout spots a tartan, a small trading ship coming out of Barcelona. Jack is disappointed that this tartan, this ship, is not as big as he'd expected. He tells Stephen that he'd really hope for a dust-up, in other words, a fight. He says, I can't tell you how it stretches your mind. Your black drafts and bloodletting are nothing to it. Really interesting echo of all the things that Stephen's been thinking about in the previous paragraphs. Jack asks Stephen if maybe they can play some music later, which Stephen is fine with. Looking at Jack, Stephen thinks he could see what his appearance might be. When the fire of his youth had gone out, heavy, grey, authoritarian, if not savage and morose. Wow. Yeah. Again, this, yeah, this is, oh, 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 heavy, heavy, heavy chapter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this tartan um, claims to be a neutral Ragusan headed home. Ragusa, the Republic of Ragusa, is present day Dubrovnik in Croatia. Familiar landscape to all of you Game of Thrones fans out there. And this tartan also lies about being in ballast, meaning that it's empty and just carrying ballast. So Jack spots this. He sends two Italian speakers 
two members of the ship's company named John Baptist and Abram Codpiece. <laughs> Abram Codpiece being a purser's name, a false name for entering a sailor on a ship's books. They go across there with Marshall. The sailors hear an argument from the Polar's hold. They hear loud voices, an angry woman's voice, and a scream. And back on the ship's deck, Marshall tells Jack that he'd knocked the woman down. Huh. The ship is not Ragusan. The man is not an Italian, and they have Spanish papers, and they have a cargo that's headed for Genoa. It starts to rain, and from far off, they hear gunshots. Marshall sends over the prisoners and stays with the ship and the woman while the Sophie heads off to chase the gunfire. And Mike, we can hear all this foreboding. Could this be the moment of action? Is something coming here where we're going to get the big, the big catharsis that Jack and Dylan are waiting for here? Yeah, you, you really think so, because it's it's now driving rain. You know, the Sophie is kind of corkscrewing through the swells here. And O'Brien tells us that like a half hour later, Stephen's mind's like a thousand miles away. He's standing on deck there and he feels Moet pulling on his coat. And, and Moet's telling him that he's getting wet. And Stephen kind of looks up, comes back to the present. And he looks at Moet and says, well, yes, it's the rain. <laughs> and, you know, what a what a great Stephen line, right? And and Moet saying, you know, can I can I get you a tarpaulin? And and as Stephen is talking to Moet, he's looking over Moet's shoulder, and he sees Ellis getting, you know, what O'Brien calls carefully, desperately sick in one of the scuttles. There, Stephen comes back, says no to the jacket, and tries to get his attention back. His attention is clearly drifting again. Obviously, we're you know we're remembering that Stephen has a lot on his mind. And Moet's returning to his mission, which is to get Stephen to stop whistling. As Stephen's been distracted here on the side, he's been whistling, and that is making everybody on the crew very nervous and uneasy. So Moet asks if he can tell Stephen something nautical. He points out the gun that they're hearing and points over to the coast, you know, saying that beyond the rain there, that coast right there, that's a lee shore. Stephen says, ah, with a certain interest lighting his eye, the phenomena you dislike so much? Is it not a mere prejudice, a weak, superstitious, traditional belief? And Moet says, oh, oh no, sir. And he explains leeway almost as well as you did, Ian, <laughs> on last week's oh, episode. Oh. You know, it's so funny because I'm thinking you know, that was the first time we got to leeway and I really wanted the listeners to understand it. And, you know, you did just a phenomenal job. And I'm reading Moet here going, ah, you must have been listening. Well done, Moet. I was glad <laughs> you were on the show. <laughs> so, so you did this. And, and as Moet is explaining all this, why this is really dangerous, these guns are booming on kind of longer and longer. Wow. Um, we should see if uh, Moet is available to join us. If anybody's got his Twitter account, let us know. By all means, right. <laughs> Everyone but Stephen is turned towards this gunfire. They're straining to hear. They're wondering what it is. Meanwhile, the text says the Sophie's captain and lieutenant, each burning for the uproar and the more than human liberation of a battle, stood side by side on the quarter deck, infinitely remote from one another, all their senses straining toward the northeast. Almost all the other members of the crew were equally intent. And so were those of the Felipe V, a seven-gun Spanish privateer. And this Spanish privateer comes racing at them out of the rain, fires a cannon, shows her colours. The Sophie fires her broadside at the privateer, who 
realizes a mistake, turns and runs back toward Barcelona. The Sophie follows. She's firing at the stern of the privateer, knocks down her mizzen and strikes the head of the rudder. A single shot strikes the Sophie and makes a very strange sound just before the Sophie's firing causes the privateer to surrender. Mike, I have a feeling then that this isn't the big tumultuous action that we were all hoping for. This has all come and gone pretty quickly here. Dylan does the usual. He takes a crew across. There's little damage to the Sophie, but that one shot with the strange noise, it turns out, had hit the galley, upset the cooking coppers, and unshipped the smoke funnel. And this is an important moment here. Jack looks forward and sees that the gun crews are all pied, which it, which means in this case stained black and white like a magpie. They're covered with fresh black paint and soot from the galley, and they're exuberantly painting each other. And this is a moment that O'Brien would often, I think, have played just for comedy, but Jack's having none of it. He hollers a stream of obscenities in what we call his line of battle voice, a very rare thing for Jack, who, it says, rarely swore, apart from a, an habitual damn or an unmeaning blasphemy and, and the occasional ill-conditioned remark about papists. Amongst all the bad temper, I think, and uh, Jack um, effing and blinding here, I think he might be getting an idea. He might be getting a Cochrane-esque inspiration from seeing the blackened faces of the crew. I don't know. We'll, we'll see what comes next. Yeah, so in, in the midst of this, the lookout reports that 11 or more gunboats are coming out quickly from Barcelona. Jack sends the crews and the carpenter across the prize to help with the steering and the repairs and to transport the prisoners back to the Sophie. Stephen sees Ellis and asks when he stopped throwing up. And Ellis says, you know, almost the moment the guns began to fire. And Stephen mm. says, yeah, that's what I thought. I was, I was watching you. So, you know, maybe Jack's got a point here. Maybe a battle does do some people good. Yeah. <laughs> it certainly got Ellis's mind off being seasick here. But the gunboats get closer. They're shots, big, heavy balls falling around them. And, and even from a mile away, Jack realizes that these 36-pounders could pierce the Sophie through and through. Now, I, I love Jack's kind of leadership instincts. He stifles an urge to tell the carpenter to hurry up, thinking, if a 36-pound ball does not hasten him, nothing I can say will do it. Huh. Don't we all wish we'd worked under more leaders like Jack? <laughs> <laughs> so... Jack tells Dylan to stop transferring prisoners and to make sail as soon as possible. Dylan reports that you know, in two more minutes, they'll have the, the tiller finished and ready to go. And Jack orders his guns to start firing on the gunboats, you knowing that they're far off, but that the smoke will help hide the Sophie and the prize. And it'll ease the tension of the Sophies who just, you know, right now can only stand there and watch these gunboats dropping the shots all around them. Well, when Dylan's ready, you know, Jack turns the Sophie coming closer in his turn to the gunboats and for a moment thinks delightedly about dashing right in there amongst them, but realizes he's got both of the prizes there. Dylan's still got lots of prisoners on his ship and, and you know, he kind of comes back to his thinking self, sails out to sea, and the gunboats return to Barcelona. Wow. And by the way, th this little episode of chasing gunboats around a bay off the Catalan coast is absolutely classic Cochrane. And I, and I love that it's, some of this is the uneasiness and the character of Dylan 
and the uh, incomplete understanding that Jack and Dylan have is stopping Jack from playing what you might call the full Cochrane here. Mm. Mm. So earlier on, we said that Jack and Stephen had kind of committed to each other that they might play some music. And as they're playing together, Jack tells Stephen that uh, you played that last piece pretty badly. And Stephen says Jack's heart wasn't in it. Jack asks Stephen if he remembers Colonel Pitt from Molly Hart's dinner party, the one with the booted foot on Molly Hart's foot there. And if Stephen thinks Pitt is handsome, Stephen says, eh, not so much. Jack says, these things return to your mind when you're hipped, when you're depressed. He's never forgotten what Dylan had said to him, but lately it's been on his mind and he thinks he must ask Dylan for an explanation, meaning a duel, when they're in port. Unless the next few days make it unnecessary. Huh. So all of Stephen's premonitions and suspicions in his journal at the beginning of the chapter, confirmed here by Jack, there's going to be a fight unless one or both of them are killed before they get to port again. Wow. Wow. Well, Stephen watches this really serious look on Jack's darkened face, and he sees this kind of red light coming into his eyes, and, and as he's watching Jack, he's kind of playing these notes on his cello and, and voicing pum, pum, pum. He's just there. And, and I think he's kind of thinking, he's letting Jack kind of get this out a bit. And, and I believe he, he now is reaching out to try to help Jack. He's, he's done a little bit of his diagnosis. And, and there's this brilliant kind of soliloquy from Stephen that I love. He says, I'm coming to believe that laws are the prime cause of unhappiness. Hmm. It's not merely a case of born under one law, required another to obey. You know, you know the lines, he says to Jack. I have no memory for verse. No, sir, it's born under half a dozen, required another 50 to obey. There are parallel sets of laws in different keys that have nothing to do with one another and that are even downright contradictory. You know, he says to Jack, you know, you wish to do something that the Articles of War, and as you have explained to me, the rules of generosity forbid, but that your present notion of the moral law and your present notion of the point of honor require. Mm. He says, this is but one instance of what is as common as breathing. You know, Burian's ass died of misery between equidistant mangers drawn first by one and then the other. And, you know, Stephen's got some great references in here, but he's, he's making this point about how we all, you know, feel like we have to do all these different things. And sometimes these kind of moralisms or these other things or these laws or all these, they conflict with each other. And he's trying to tell Jack, you're in the middle of this conflict. Don't, don't let it get to you here. Wow. And Buridan's ass is a really interesting point here. This idea of being torn between you know, one rule for one situation and another rule that also seems to apply. This this line of born under one law required another to obey. I'm guessing that that's got some kind of origin story here, Mike. Yeah, it does. It's it's interesting. There's a gentleman, Falk Greville, the first Baron Brook, and he has a book of poems called Mustafa, and this one poem, it's it's the chorus sacerdotum, which I, I believe means priest. So it's almost kind of you know thinking about a priest, 
but that begins a wearisome condition of humanity born under one law to another bound. Vainly begot and yet forbidden vanity, created sick, commanded to be sound. What meaneth nature by these diverse laws? Passion and reason, self-division cause? Is it the mark or majesty of power to make offenses that it may forgive? And he goes on to say how nature kind of fights against itself, fights, you know, we fight against our own natures. And, you know, we try to do what nature seems to compel us to do, but we get punished for that, that we're forbidden for so many things. Many of the commands, you know, become difficult and hard to follow given our nature, you know, and, and you know, things like lust. And he goes on at the very end, you know, he's talking about priests, and, and I think about all of us, about being bound by vows, you know, by promotion, uh, having, you know, kind of holy sacrifice and rites and pomp that we're taught to believe in good and still devotion, yeah. you know, to preach of heaven's wonders and delights. Yet when each of us in his own heart looks, he finds the God there far unlike his books. So it's this, uh, you know, it's kind of a really stunning, powerful poem and we know this guy is a good guy because in real life under Elizabeth, he was secretary uh, and, and a treasurer of the Navy. So he's, he must uh-huh. be a good guy. He's a brother. <laughs> Although, you know, fascinating life. But this poem that, that O'Brien, I think, has obliquely referenced for us because it really is so strong. And he wants us to go find this. And this idea, Ian, as you had mentioned, of Burian's ass, I mean, you know, this is one that we hear so often in cultural references, but it's but it's easy to miss. Yeah, it is. Stephen picks back up on this theme of double loyalties. He says, then again, with a slight difference, there are these double loyalties, another great source of torment. Jack stops him. This is in conversation here between Stephen and Jack. There are no double loyalties. There's only one king. Only a scrub can have his heart in more than one place at a time. And Stephen says, well, Nonsense. You know, men are often sincerely attached to a very surprising number of women at once. But Stephen concedes that Jack knows more about that than Stephen does. Oh, big burn there. Right. Stephen says, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about wider loyalties. He talks about candid Americans before the issue with Great Britain had become so envenomed. Catholic priests in France and so many Frenchmen in and out of France who might be loyal to France as a nation, but not loyal to Bonaparte. So much pain, he says. And the more honest the man, the worse the pain. But there, at least, the conflict is direct. It seems to me that the greater mass of confusion and distress must arise from these less evident divergencies. The moral law, the civil, military, common laws, the code of honour, custom, the rules of practical life, of civility, of amorous conversation, gallantry, to say nothing of Christianity for those that practice it. All sometimes, indeed generally, at variance, none ever in an entirely harmonious relation to the rest. And man is perpetually required to choose one rather than another. Perhaps in his particular case, it's contrary. It is as though our strings were each tuned according to a completely separate system. It is as though the poor ass, this is Burden's ass again, were surrounded by four and twenty mangers. You are an antinomian, said Jack, meaning... Somebody who's who's against law outright, who rejects laws and, and legalism. I am a pragmatist, 
said Stephen. Come, let us drink up our wine, and I will compound you a dose. Requies Nikolai. Stephen says he'll bleed Jack on the following day as well. Jack says, tomorrow I'll be the one letting blood, the gunboat's blood, and don't they wish they may relish it. Uh, Mike, um, Requies Nikolai. Tell us where that might be taking us. Well, at least according to the Patrick O'Brien Muster book, this comes from Robert Burton's Anatomy of Melancholy, a book we've revisited in, mm. in previous episodes. And this dose was called the last refuge sleep aid, you know, in cases of melancholy and depression, possibly an opium-based bolus, yeah. we yeah. speculate there. Hmm. Well, of, of all the things you might want to, to have comforting your heart, I think an, an opium-based bolus is probably a bit extreme for most of our listeners. So if there's anything else you'd like to reach out and get comfort from, maybe even if it's just a Diet Coke with a splash of rum in it, then, uh, then why don't you go and grab one, and we'll be right back after this short break. If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovers hole welcome back from the break hope you've had a little bit of enjoyment something short of opium and that you're joining the crew back again now hopefully home you've got a lot of water and a lot of soap but o'brien's telling us that on the ship the men, especially these men with all these blackened faces, don't. There's very little water and, and, and no soap ration. And so these folks are looking more bestial and savage every day, especially the fair-haired ones. Yeah. And O'Brien also reminds us that with all these prize crews off taking ships to Mahan, the Sophie is down to 54 men. They're 36 men short of their complement here. Now, Dylan, therefore is ordered to have the men get as much sleep as possible, given that they've got all this room available. So maybe, it, it, as you pointed out, we're back to the three-watch system from before, you know, when Jack first came to the Sophie with a yeah, much smaller yeah. crew. More room, more hammocks, more sleep. <laughs> right. Well, in, in true Cochrane fashion, Jack has got a plan for cutting out these two gunboats uh, when they all run out, as the Sophie in her turn comes in. When the moon first starts to rise, they send up a blue flare to confuse the enemy and head in just as the Spanish try to work out how to answer Sophie's signal. Instead of coming out together as before, they take turns coming out, firing and spinning around. He thinks they're trying to lead the Sophie on to tempt her into the bay here inshore. They make a dash for the gunboat farthest out and the others come together firing at the Sophie's stern just as the Sophie chases the other gunboat that's hitting some of Sophie's rigging. Sophie tacks tries herself to draw them out, looking like she's been winged. Another little Cochrane-esque deceptive manoeuvre here. Once the Sovie completes her repairs, she spins after the slowly pursuing gunboats. She's trying to cut two of them off from the land. She would have had them, Mike, if it wasn't for a lucky shot that hit the foretop gallant yard. So another little skirmish here. You know, we're waiting, waiting, waiting for some great cathartic action and yet another little skirmish with some coasting ships. And we're getting plenty of gunfire, little bit of damage, but I don't think it's the thing that Jack and Dylan are both looking forward to. No, no. As a matter of fact, when, you know, when dawn comes, you know, they've been fighting sort of throughout the night part of this and, you know, they can see that there is actually a lot more 
more minor damage, but a lot of it. And so Dylan sets Ellis to nodding and splicing. He says it's a most capital opportunity for learning your profession. And he walks off humming. Uh, The crew is busy repairing the Sophie all day and getting ready for another fight, which they know is going to happen again somewhere soon. They're, They're very happy with the money they know they've made on the current prizes, and they're convinced that Jack has private intelligence on Spanish sailings. And they're pretty delighted by Dylan's strange merriment. You know, Brian tells us that Dylan had found some of the crewmen pilfering between decks on that privateer that they took. And that's a serious court-martial offense, one Dylan in the past has regarded as a damned privateer's trick, but that Dylan hadn't reported them. So they're they're a little wary. They're kind of wondering what's going on. They're kind of staring you know, behind Dylan's back at him. And Stephen, who's taking kind of his daily observations at the Elb Tree Pump, and, and now it's kind of part of the scenery for the crew, is listening in because the crew's talking without regard to Stephen being there. And he notes that they have a quietly cheerful attentiveness with a note of anxiety in it. Mm-hmm. And O'Brien tells us that Stephen shares their uneasiness. Oh, there's, there's no let up here in the tension, really, is there? Mm-hmm. At least among the key people. Dylan, even so, is in tearing spirits. And all this kind of toing and froing with the gunboats has maybe helped him out a little bit. He invites Pullings and Babington for dinner in the gunroom. With Marshall away, and remember, there's still bad blood between Dylan and Marshall. With Marshall away, they're in festive mood. And Stephen watches Dylan join Babington in the chorus of a song, thundering out, This is the law I will maintain until my dying day, sir, that whoever king shall reign, I will be vicar of Bray, sir. And this vicar of Bray song is a satirical little potted history of England. The vicar of Bray was a man who, according to the song, regardless of whatever fatal king or queen or political party was in power, the vicar of Bray will fall in line and pledge loyalty, pledge fealty. The only law that he maintains is that whosoever king shall reign, I will be vicar of Bray, sir. This is great. And it's funny, but if Dylan could really feel this way, he'd be having no problems at the minute. He'd be happy with whatever commanding officer's in charge. But Dylan's burdened with perception beyond simply obeying chain of command. He's really trying to, you know, find his own morally right way through the situation here. Yeah. But Dylan pounds the table. He calls for one more drink before everyone gets back up on deck. And and after the young men leave and it's kind of Dylan and Stephen mostly left, he says it's just such a relief to be fighting kingships again and not those damned privateers. And Stephen says that he's really quite the romantic, you know, that a cannonball from a privateer makes the same hole as one from a kingship. And and this really angers Dylan. He's kind of saying, what do you mean, me, a romantic? And, you know, Stephen says, well, you know, the next thing, you know, you're going to be telling me about the divine rights of these kingships. Uh. <laughs> and, you know, Dylan, I think it, you know, Stephen struck a little bit of the nerve here. So Dylan fires back and says, that even Stephen can't deny that the king is the sole font of honor. And Stephen replies, not I, not for a moment. And, and I suspect that Stephen could have sung that line to the tune of the Vicar of Bray. <laughs> Stephen, Stephen <laughs> knows how to get along to a point here. Yeah, He's yeah, not going to take the bait from Dylan. And Dylan, still with songs on his mind, asks Stephen if he knows this particular song that 
He's he's heard it recently at a wake for one of his grandfather's tenants. This this song that he's struggling to remember had words about wild geese are flying upon the grey sea. And Stephen does know it, and he sings the lines about the geese never returning, for, as the song says, the white horse has scunnered upon the green lea. That's the song that Dylan was trying to remember. He really thanks Stephen, and he walks off humming the song. And, and Mike, there is something for us to dig for here in this song with this lyric about the white horse scunnered upon the green lea. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. The gun rooms posited this over the years, and, and nobody's come up with this song, you know, to mm. do that. But there is a line in a William Butler Yeats poem called September 1913 about the death of romantic Ireland. And it seems to fit the bill nicely as essentially a potential mm. inspiration for perhaps O'Brien to append these these verses that allude to it for, mm. you know, for Stephen to sing to Dylan. And and. Yeats' poem in, in one stanza includes this line, Was it for this the wild geese spread their gray wing upon every tide? And he continues, For this, that all that blood was shed, for this Edward Fitzgerald died, and Robert Emmett and Wolfe Tone, all that delineum of the brave Romantic Ireland's dead and gone. It's with O'Leary in the grave. Wow. And and here, yeah, this is and, and this is there's kind of a, a history of Ireland in this. This is just one of the stanzas. This reference to wild geese is not to birds, but an allusion to Irish exiles. And he, you know, he had mentioned John O'Leary in every in kind of at the end of every verse, who was an exile, who was, you know, he was committed to a 20-year sentence handed down in 1865. But the Wild geese are earlier exiles who served in the Catholic armies in Europe following the Treaty of Limerick in 1691. Um, you know, there the Irish Jacobite armies were being transported to France following their defeat at the Battle of the Boyne in 1690. And this became known as the Flight of the Wild Geese. You know, all of this poem and this verse recaps, you know, what we've known about the 1798 rebellion that we talked about in Master and Commander so far, it calls to mind Stephen's comment that Dylan is a romantic here, you know, and it serves as a really somber foreshadowing yeah. that this idea that, you know, with so many folks in Ireland, uh, you know, unable to have jobs, unable to serve in parliament, unable to serve in the military, you know, you had all these exoduses from Ireland of these people to go fight on the continent, this fleeing of the wild geese and, and the white horse referring back to, to England, perhaps the Hanovers there. So, you know, again, it's also this very somber foreshadowing, all this dead and gone and in the grave, this romanticism. Wow. Wow. Well, the Sophie appears to be heading for Menorca at sunset and she returns inshore before dawn at breakfast. He, Jack's really excited. He's with child to know what trap those gunboats were trying to lead them into. Stephen is persuaded that Jack already knows the answer to that, or at least has a good idea. As the mist and the cloud bank clears away on deck, the lookout and the crew spot a large ship hull up from on the deck. Jack asks Dylan what he makes of her, and Dylan replies that that's their old friend, the Cacafuego. Jack agrees, 
invites Dylan to join him and Stephen for coffee. And in this moment, Jack and Dylan are getting along very well. There's no conversation, but there's easy companionship. And Mike, it sounds like the thing that they both want for their two different reasons is just on the horizon here. Yeah. Jack asks Stevens if they should put on silk stockings since that is supposed to make it easier for the surgeon if they need to be cut up after a leg wound. Back on deck, they confirm altogether that the ship is indeed the Cacafuego. It has turned to meet the Sophie. Jack calls the men together and Stephen watches Jack trying to keep the smile off his face and look grave. Jack says to the crew, I know some of you were not best pleased when we let the Cacafuego go last time. Now he says that the Sophie has the best gunnery in the fleet. They won't let her go. They'll beat to quarters. And when they first gathered, a quarter of the crew were looking troubled. However, the text says, the self-possessed happiness radiating from their captain and his lieutenant and the spontaneous delighted cheer from the first half of the crew changed this wonderfully. And as they set about clearing the sloop, there were not above four or five who looked glum. The others might have been going to the fair. Wow. So, we've, as as readers, we've got all of this foreboding and darkness and danger and existential blur that the crew are all whistling happy tunes here. Right, right. You know, the ships are now about half a mile away and the Cacafuego could start firing on the Sophie. She's got the gunnery to do that, these big guns. But Jack's standing there with Ellis and he says, you know, with the Spanish, they're never shy, but they're also never ready. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, so the Sophie is moving closer and closer to Cacafuego. The Cacafuego is not firing at them. Finally, the Spanish captain fires a gun and runs up his colors. And Jack runs up an American flag and has Richard's note the time. So this is kind of the beginning officially of the battle. And in that, you know, the Spanish kind of pause looking at this American flag as the Sophie comes closer and looks like she's pointing behind the Cacafuego, like she, you know, she means to cross her wake. And at the last minute, you know, the Sophie turns, sends up the English colors and runs for the Cacafuego's side. You know, I can hear Jack saying, Nelson, you know, never mind maneuvers, go straight at him here. Yeah. Well, the Spaniards fire at once, but now with the Sophie smaller and so close, you know, these shots are kind of, you know, going way over. They only make four holes way high in the top gallons. The Sophies cheer, they get closer and they're holding their fire as the Cacafuego fires again too high. And Jack puts the Sophie right up against the Cacafuego and they fire their treble shotted guns from below the Cacafuego's gun ports up through her deck at six inch range. They're shocking devastation. Yeah. You know, they hear confused screaming on the Spanish quarter deck. The Cacafuego is firing, but very irregular and high. And the Sophies are keeping up this continued, splendid, rolling broadside until Dylan hears the Cacafuego give the order to board. So the Sophie booms off and the Marines fire into these assembled Spaniards. And from 10 feet away, the Sophie then fires into this midst of all these you know, Spaniards gathered on the sides, just you know, putting seven dreadful holes into the Cacafuego and devastating the crew up there. Yeah. And Mike, this is 
right in the heat of a really, really critical action. And I love how we're, we're observing not only that the crew and the Marines are handling their weapons well, the ship's being really well sailed. Like to get that close and to avoid getting entangled, to pull away and then pull back alongside again. There's some really great skill going on here. The Sophie is back alongside the Cacafuego. The Spaniards decide that they're going to try and fire anything they can down into the Sophie. Remember that they're very, very high up, so that's going to be tricky. They're disorganized. Their firing has little effect. Twice more, the Spaniards tried to board. The Sophie shears off, cutting them up again with terrible slaughter. And Mike, there's a very famous oil painting, painted not long after the action, of Cochrane's ship, the Speedy, against the Cacafuego's alter ego, the Gamo. And there's this image of Spaniards alive and presumably dead as well, all kind of being pitched over the side of the Gamo there. Terrible slaughter. The Cacafuego's firing, even so, is starting to cut the Sophie's main top to pieces. So the rigging's taking a shredding here. But the Sophie can keep up her regular fire, her regular well-ordered fire, doing whatever's necessary to continue the battle, almost without orders. Jack's training and his leadership are really paying off here. He worries about the damage to the Sophie and tells Ellis to do some preparation for boarding. He says, have the cook make all the dirty pans available for the crew to blacken their faces as he orders Babington to stop firing and boom off. He tells Dylan to take the starboard watch forward and blacken their faces. He tells the entire crew that now is the time to board and carry her. Five minutes hearty, says Jack, and she's ours. Now and no quarter while she's staggering. Dylan and his crew go forward. The rest go back with Jack to the aft end of the Sophie to midships-ish on the Cacafuego. Well, Jack goes down to the Orlop. He, you know, he wants to check on their wounded and dead. And he's recruiting Stephen here because the wounded are all dealt with at this point. And Jack asks him if he wants to go with him to board, that they need every man. And Stephen says, no, he'll stay behind and steer so that Jack can have every other man on the ship. And on deck, you know, Stephen's watching the crew members preparing to board. Uh, Jack asks Stephen, what's the Spanish for 50 more men? And, and Stephen tells him. Yeah, then Stephen takes the wheel. And here's that here's that moment that <laughs> you and I were were kind of laughing about. You know, this guy who doesn't have a nautical bone in his body is now looking like Jason Bourne, you know, turning the Sophie into the Caca Fuego as the Sophies leap up their sides. But you know, Ian, you, you tell us later how much of this mimics what really happened, yeah, you know, sure. with Cochrane here. Well, Jack goes up over the side. He's hollering, come on. I mean, you know, I, I love what Patrick Tall does this in this voice tearing out of him. You know, he jumps over a Spanish gunner. He's striking with his cavalry sword at pikes and swords that are opposes him. But as, as he lands there and moves forward, he sees that there's hundreds of the Cacafuego's men on their deck. But at first, the Spaniards are giving way. They're kind of backing into the waist. But finally, pushed together, they start to rally. And there's really hard fighting. Jack is, is you know, fighting with a, a Spanish soldier with their swords. And while he's fighting and has his arm up, a pikeman stabs Jack in the ribs, pulls it out, and is about to stab him again. And Bonden, from behind him, fires a pistol which blows off the bottom of Jack's ear but kills the pikeman. Jack then kills the soldier and sees that these 300 Spanish are pushing back against his Sophies, you know, driving more and more of a wedge between his men and Dylan's borders, you know, from the 
other end of the ship there. Jack jumps up on a gun and calls for Dylan to thrust for the starboard gangway. He sees Stephen down below and, and hollers for 50 more men in Spanish, just like Stephen had taught him. And Stephen starts to holler back in Spanish here. So, boy, we are in the midst of it. We really are. And I just want to take a moment to enjoy the fact that we're so up close and personal with Jack. Since that moment, a couple of chapters ago, when we kind of had the God's eye view of the Sophie and the Cacafuego, their tracks kind of missing each other in the night, we've been getting closer and closer and closer. And here we are now, you know, level with Jack Aubrey's ear as he's in the right. There's a surge, there's a shrieking on the forecastle and a drive for the gangway. The Spaniards turn and they see this rush of black faces behind them. Jack's Sophies start cheering like madmen as they push the Spaniards back. They're hampered in the waist, they're crowded. The Spaniards aren't able to strike. Jack steps back and tells Bondon to go strike their colours. Bondon leaps over the dead Spanish captain and brings down the flag. Jack hollers and points and they all see the colours coming down. And this is the end for the cohesion and the morale of the Spanish crew. The fighting stops. The senior surviving Spanish officer moves forward and offers Jack his sword. Jack tells him to send the men down into the hold while the officers remain on deck. And the Spaniard gives the order. The men file down and the Spaniards realize how few attackers there were. I think, Mike, at the same time, the Sophies are realizing just how many Spaniards there are still alive in this crew. So they're hurried down. The Sophies get canister-loaded carronades pointed down the hatchways to contain them. And the action is done here. Wow. The, wow. You mentioned before, Mike, the, the similarities between the uh, the Cochrane action between the sloop Speedy and El Gamo of the Spanish Navy. This is almost, you know, moment for moment, detail for detail, a direct replica and, and none the worse for that, as you know, as O'Brien has said himself. You can't do any better than the really astounding realities of these actions. 6th of May, 1801, the 32-gun Zebec frigate El Ramo of the Spanish Navy under the command of Don Francisco de Torres encountered the much smaller 14-gun brig Speedy under the command of Lord Thomas Cochrane. El Ramo was captured. History has noted, and contemporary accounts noted straight away, the difference between the size and firepower of these two ships. And I've been going back and rereading David Cordingley's excellent book. It's it's published in the UK as Cochrane the Dauntless. I think it's published under different names in the US and elsewhere. But O'Brien has picked up more or less exactly what was going on in this, in this action. If you read the prior chapter, actually, what's happened leading up to this? The deception about the Danish brig, the pretending to be in quarantine, the uh, the cutting out of gunboats, all the skirmishes, that's all for real as well. And I won't spoil too much, but I'll tell you what's coming up in the following chapters of this book is exactly what happened with Thomas Cochrane. Wow. There's one thing, Mike, that I want to point out. It's absolutely true that the surgeon of the, of the Speedy, uh, a guy called James Guthrie, did indeed steer Cochrane's ship in to that final boarding encounter with the Spaniards. But James Guthrie was the ship surgeon. He was Scottish, not Irish. He wasn't a lubber like Stephen Maturin. He was an old naval hand by now and had been ashore on cutting out expeditions with Cochrane. So I can believe it of James Guthrie. I think, as you and I have said, it's a bit of a stretch to imagine Stephen Maturin coming in all Jason Bourne, like you said. But in most of the respects, the action here is spot on. Yeah. Well, in ending the chapter, Jack calls for Mr. Dillon. 
and O'Brien writes, the word passed and no answer came. He was lying there near the starboard gangway where the most desperate fighting had been, a couple of steps from little Ellis. When Jack picked him up, he thought he was only hurt. But turning him, he saw the great wound in his heart. And thus ends chapter 10. It's great. I mean, like, it, 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 it's been a long one. But what a roller coaster of a chapter. Brilliant, brilliant building up of the tension and it's the slow burn of the relationship between Jack and Dylan. And Dylan absolutely got the catharsis that I think, you know, he his spirit was longing for. I'm sure he didn't want to end it that way. But, oh, my gosh. Truth being stranger than fiction as well, this battle duplicates precisely, so precisely, the action between uh, Speedy and the Gamo. The only other difference here is that uh, Lieutenant Parker, second in command of the Speedy, was wounded badly but not killed in the action. So yeah. Dylan, Dylan is the special special standout here in this story. And Mike, the details here seem really appropriate, really carefully chosen by O'Brien. Yeah, it's you know it seems to me so fitting that the hole was in Dylan's heart. Yeah. His mood at the end of that chapter, you know, he's kind of tearing spirits and everything. It reminded me of what we used to look for on the suicide hotline and in counseling, you know, that seeming happiness when somebody has decided that there's a way out for them. All of a sudden, it looks like they're, they're getting better. And it's like, whoa, whoa, wait, watch. I really wish it had gone differently for Dillman. I wish that he yeah. could have opened up to Stephen and to Jack some more. You know, and, and I do think that he and Jack could have been very, very fond of each other. You know, they were in so many ways so much alike, except for some of those, you know, past hurts definitely worn. And, and I get it, you know, so heavily by Dylan. Yeah. I'm really glad that Stephen is there for Jack. You know, I really think Jack could take Dylan's death pretty hard. Uh, I know that that I would. Yeah, yeah, for all kinds of reasons. Like he was looking ahead to a possible duel and saying, "If to saying to himself, well, if if this action doesn't take care of that first, he's kind of almost wished for this in a way." Yeah. Oh, and he, you know, he, Jack's got this very uncomplicated esteem for Dylan as a sailor and as a naval officer. Ah, man, and this this incredible victory is, you know, made bittersweet. We've got the 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 passing of Dylan. We've got the death as well of Ellis in action here. Um, this is not the classic culmination of a war story where the hero gets, you know, unvarnished kudos from a victory against the odds. It's certainly a victory against the odds, but this is not the end of the story for Jack, clearly. Jack has ridden his luck in military and merchant battles. We don't know yet whether that's going to be enough for Admiral Keith to revisit his thinking about Jack's career. We know that Jack hasn't got unfettered access to the affections of molly hart any longer and maybe he wonders what he's returning to back in mahon i i loved as well mike how o'brien has managed to get jack and the ship's crew to, to earn this victory you know it wasn't just plucked out of one turn of events or one special you know tour de force on the part of jack all of the work that he's done in the book so far has brought him to this point he was able to use deceptive cunning some great decision-making, some courage, some seamanship, and, and the gunnery. So it's not only a victory for Jack Aubrey, Day, the gunner, Marshall, the master, uh, Dylan, the first lieutenant, Bondon, Pullings, Babington, and of course, all the ship's crew, the, the messmates of Tom Simmons, who helped him pour a quart of rum a day down his neck. 
they've all had their part to play up to this point. Mm. And Mike, if like me, you're reading this on Kindle, you might think, well, this is the end of the story, right? Yeah, I mean, I mean, you certainly would, you know, because it sounds like that's it. We've kind of wrapped up all the, the lines of narrative here. But for us, so deeply attached to these heroes, I, I you know, call them heroes, they're heroes for me. You know, you still keep wondering, you know, how is this going to affect Stephen? What yeah. happens to Jack next? You know, for Stephen, this was that action, that higher stakes action that Dylan had said he wanted to see Stephen's reaction to. And and this one, you know, Stephen wasn't down in the Orlop. He watched it, you know, maybe not from the front seats, but at least from the very close balcony, if you will. So, yeah. you know, Howard Dylan's death in this battle where he played at least a bit of a role in the attack going to affect him. What's going to happen with Jack? Where do we go for here? It's not over, as you say, despite it looking that way on Kindle. And what do you say next week to a little bit more Patrick O'Brien? With all my heart. front seats but at least from the very close balcony sorry sorry sam at least from the very